Welcome to the Calvary Baptist Church Podcast. For more information, be sure to visit us at cbctaylorville.com. Listen now as Pastor Chad delivers this week's message. Praise God that He is a God of revival. Amen. Anybody desperate for the things of God this morning? Anyone at all? Raise your hand if you are. You can give a shout to the Lord if you are. That's okay too. You can clap. You can do whatever it is that you want to do. Um, just don't run up here because it could get distracting, but, uh, but just know that you can, and I love you. So, hey, I, I am desperate for the things of God, not only in my own life, but also for you and for our community, and I want us to get it right, amen? I want us to get it right spiritually. I want us to be people who are aligned with Christ in the ways that he wants us to be, and I believe that God does not want us to be the shiny, happy people that I talked about last week as we started in this endeavor of looking at the seven woes to the Pharisees. There's something there that Jesus was exposing in the Pharisees' heart that I believe maybe needs to be exposed in some of us, perhaps. A shiny, happy person, as I talked about last week, is someone who's different on the outside than they are on the inside. They can look the part on the outside, but on the inside, it's just not the same. I'm not talking about how we're, we're a sinner and sometimes we're, we're, you know, we're growing in our faith and sometimes we backslide. Not just in that regard, but what I'm saying is somebody who's truly a fake where they're pretending, like the word that was described, that Jesus used to describe the Pharisees last week, was the word hypocrites. They were actors. They were playing a role. They were playing the role and a posture that they were were men of God, and yet they were clearly not men of God. And we're going to expose some more of their their hearts today, but I want to explain to you a little bit what's going on over here. Anyone see that? Um, So... Any Dolphin fans in the house? Probably got a couple. Thank you, Harold. Got it, got it. There we go. We got a few back here. True believers, I'm just saying. True believers. Um, they have to be. If we're a Dolphins fan, we don't win very much. So we have to like, continue to believe that we're eventually going to win. But, see, here's the thing. I, the, the reason why Fred is, is adorned in the way that he is, I mean, he looks good. Don't get me wrong. He looks really good. The finger thing, it's a little weird. I'm not going to lie. It's a little weird. But I just want to ask you a question, and Fred's illustrating this for us. What makes a good fan, a sports fan, what makes a good fan? Any takers? Loyalty, Loyalty? all right. Who else has something? Anyone over here? Anyone? What else besides loyalty, which is great, yeah. That's it, it's just loyalty. All right, well, maybe, maybe it's like to be a good fan, it's like you have to have the jersey. Like you have to look the part on the outside. Maybe you have to have the hat, like really sell it out. You know, you got to sell that you're, no, I'm a fan. Like I'm a loyal fan. Maybe it's even like if you were to look up here and look really closely, you see that the jersey is like an old school jersey, but the hat is like, it has the new logo. So then it shows longevity. It's like, then it's like years of being a fan. No, I'm, I'm, I'm a loyal fan. Thank you, Shayla. Yes, a loyal fan over the span of years. That's what makes a fan loyal. Absolutely. But maybe you need to be like, Fan is, is short for the word fanatic. Maybe you have to have the whole finger, like, thing, like hand thing, like you, the pointed finger, like we're number one. Like you need to go over the top. And, and if you're that person, awesome. I'm clearly not that person. That is my finger. I have no idea where I got it. Uh, I don't think I've ever actually had it on my hand other than like in the company of my, my house by myself, never in front of the mirror, just in case you wondered. Like, I don't know. But maybe, like, we think of a fan, it's like, okay, these, these kind of characters come out and say, okay, this is what it takes to be a fan. Maybe to be a true fan is somebody you have to actually go to a, see a game 
yourself. You have to actually be there. At least once, you have to actually be there. Maybe you need to know all the starting line. If you need to know all the facts about the team, you need to know the history, you need to know this and that. Maybe that's what it is to be a fan. What Jesus is, is calling us today is more than fandom. He's calling us to be committed followers of him. You see, here's the interesting thing about being a fan of a sports team. They can change. They can change. Nothing wrong with that. Like, if your team stinks for long enough, you're probably going to look for a winner. I'm just saying. Most people are. Like, my team has stunk forever. We're moving on to a winner. And there's nothing wrong with that. But when we're a committed follower of Jesus, he expects us to begin and continue until we get to the place where it's the end of our physical life, but we just continue on into heaven. Let's switch the question because you're not Dolphins fans. So let's switch the question. Not to what does it take for somebody to be a fan, but what are the markers of being a true Christian? What are the markers for somebody being a true Christian? I mean, how can you know that you know that you know that somebody is a true Christian? How can you know this about yourself? How could you even be able to look at somebody else's life and say, okay, that, those are, I'm not saying they're perfect, but there are markers of being with Christ. What does that look like? How can you know? Is it the fact that they're just at church all the time? Is it the fact that they're connected to a specific church? Is it that they've just made it a decision one time or is it something else? Is it that they have a care for the poor? Or, or could it be that they just love all the social justice causes that are in our world right now? Is it because they just grew up religious? Is it because their, their mom or dad was somebody who was really involved in the church? Was it a certain class that they took or that they're taking that makes them? Man, that's the marker of a true Christian. Is it a dramatic spiritual experience? Like there was this moment. Like, nothing's changed after that, but there was this moment. Is it that? You see, when we start picking things apart like that, what we start to see is, whoa. Okay, if these, these are not true markers of being a Christian, all those other things, some of those things are great, but yet, if those are the only markers, it's like other people outside of the Christian faith have the same markers. So how can we know that we know that we know? You see, for us, I'm not trying to make you a Dolphins fan. I want you to root on whoever it is that you root for. Or if you don't like sports, that's fine. But I want us to, to know and, and come to an understanding that while I'm not trying to convert you to a team, because I am a man of God, and if you are a man or woman of God, we are all on mission to do something together. We are all on mission to bring as many people as possible into the kingdom of God. That's why we're here. We're not here to, to have a holy huddle. We're here to bring as many people as possible into the kingdom of God. That's why we're here. And being part of the kingdom of God does not mean that they just, oh, they made a decision and now they're going to heaven and now the work's over. Because the kingdom of God is absolutely a place. It is the kingdom of heaven. But also the kingdom of God is personified in a Christian's life. It's personified. It's lived out in a Christian's life. Many times Jesus said things like, the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is like. Because he was trying to shape something inside of us to bring it more in line with him. It's what he's been trying to do. So we, in line with our mission, we're a church for God, for the city, for the nations, 
this is what we do and this is why we do it. This is the vision. This is what we're, we're being brought in, what we're trying to bring people into. Into the movement, getting swept up in a movement with God, doing things for God, fueled by God. So how do we bring the good news to people and invite them into this mission without bringing a bunch of cultural baggage with it? How can we invite people into the mission of God without it being some sort of tainted version of the Christian faith, but it's the purest form of the Christian faith? We're going to see about this today because this is actually what the Pharisees were doing. They were tainting, not the Christian faith, but they were tainting what they were inviting people into. Dallas Willard, one of my favorite authors, a a theologian, philosopher, and a preacher, he said this in one of his books. He says, how many people are wrongly moved away from God because the way they're doing it was wrong? How many people are actually swept up in, in the movement of God and they take part in it for a little while, and yet because the way that they were doing it was twisted, it was wrong, and now they're not actually part of the faith anymore? Whether or not they have a faith that was real, I don't know. I can't speak into where they are eternally. But what I can say is this. It's really easy to get it wrong. The Pharisees were blind to who they really were. I invite you to go into Matthew 23, one of the most serious chapters in all the Bible. And I want you to know that the Pharisees were sold out that they thought that they had it right. They thought that they were the chosen ones by which the truth was being revealed to the people. They thought that they were the caretakers of the written and the oral law and the Old Testament, and yet they were blind to their own corruption. Jesus would say certain things about them as what we'll see exposed throughout the rest of this series. He would call them sons of hell in this passage we're going to study today. He would call them fools. He would call them blind guides. He would call them self-indulgent, whitewashed tombs, full of hypocrisy and lawlessness, servants, vipers, persecutors, and murderers of God's people. Jesus says, you travel over sea and land to win a single convert. Jesus, when he he says you're traveling over sea and land, this is an exaggeration. They were not known as being people who would would travel to make converts. There were upwards of 11,000 Pharisees at this time, by the way. But they weren't evangelizing like we're told to evangelize. But even the the 11,000, they were converting people. There was two different types of way that they were converting or or proselytes. The word convert is also the word that we would use, proselyte. They were the proselytes of the gate. They were Gentiles. They were trying to convert Gentiles, by the way. They were Gentiles, non-Jews, and they participated in the community life of the Jews, but they didn't go all the way into Jewish culture. So they didn't practice all of the ceremonies. They didn't get circumcised like the Jews did. They were the proselytes of the gate. There were a larger amount of these people, the proselytes of the gate. They were also known as the God-fearers. Sometimes you may look in the Bible where it makes reference to God-fearers, and these are the type of people. An instance of these would be in Acts 17.4, where it talks about the devout Greeks of Thessalonica. The other converts, the proselytes of Not only of the gates, the larger group, but the smaller group. This is where the Pharisees wanted them to be in the next part. The proselytes of righteousness. 
These are Jewish people who went, they were Gentile people who went all in to Jewish culture. They went all in. They did the circumcision. They did all the lifestyle. They transferred their gods to the Jewish God. They went all in. They were adhering to the Mosaic traditions and the law, and they did exactly what the Pharisees wanted them to do. They were right in the Pharisees' hands. They were living by the oral traditions, at least striving to, in their failed attempts. You may look at this and say, well, what is exactly wrong with this? It's like if they're, they're traveling over sea and land, it says right in the middle of the, of the verse, traveling over sea and land to win a single convert. Well, aren't we trying to bring people into the kingdom of God? Aren't we, trying to be, aren't we on mission to bring people in? Aren't we doing something very similar? Yes. Jesus isn't scorning them because they're making converts. Jesus is scorning the way that they're making converts. It's what they're inviting people to because they're not inviting people into the gospel as what we're doing. Instead, they were inviting people into a a faulty way of life that was a dead, dead end of which Jesus would call them twice as much the sons of hell. You may say, well, what is the, the sons of hell thing? Is that just like an exaggeration? The word hell is the word Gehenna, sometimes also used to describe, in the Bible, there's a valley. It's called the, the Valley of Hinnom. You can go there today. Right outside the valley of, or right, excuse me, right outside of the city of Jerusalem is the Valley of Hinnom. I should have a picture of it that should be on this screen, hopefully. If not, then not. It's gone. She's saying it's not there. So anyway, there's a valley that's right, right outside of the old city of Jerusalem. And that, that valley was synonymous with some, some things that had happened hundreds of years before. There was child sacrifice, cultic child sacrifice that, was hap- that happened right in this valley. Right outside the city of Jerusalem. They were offering up their children in sacrifice to the false god Molech through a cultic practice that was impacting the people of God at the time. Then during the time of Jesus, this is also where the trash would be. So the trash outside the city would always be burning. So a trash heap that's always burning. So when when Jesus would say, twice the sons of hell, twice the sons of Gehenna, they didn't have to go very far outside the city into the valley of Hinnom to see this burning trash heap of which was referenced over and over and over in the New Testament. And also the cultic practices and they were, when the people of God were bowing down to, the, the nation of Israel was bowing down to, the cultic practices of the false god Molech when they were offering up their children in sacrifice and burning them there. So when Jesus was saying these words, he wasn't just using some exaggerated thing. He was talking about a a geographical point outside of the city that they could go themselves, that they knew well about. And everyone else who was listening at that time also knew well about this place. Jesus was accusing them of being missionaries of evil. Well, how can we bring true evangelism to lost people? I want to spend the rest of our time here. 
How can we bring true evangelism to lost people? How can we do this? How can we do this in a way that, that honors God? That truly lives out his mission? That's not fake, that's not hypocritical. That's not us trying to sell something. That's not us just trying to, to have somebody make a one-time decision and then just treat them as if they're saved, but yet they're not actually being regenerated on the inside. How can we make sure that we get this right? We'll begin here, John 10, 10. Here's the invitation of Jesus. Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So if we begin here, one of the places that Jesus began in sharing the gospel, we can begin by showing people what could be, showing each other what could be and what should be in our own lives. Because Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and they may have it to the full. Sometimes when we want to share our faith, what we do is we jump right on the sin. Be like, hey, you're a sinner. You're going to die. You're going to die and you're going to go to hell. Hey, that's the truth about you. You want me to tell you about Jesus? Like sometimes that's where we begin. And, and yet me saying it, it, it is funny. It's, it's comical. We're like, do we really do that? And sometimes we do that. And more times than not, that's all we've done. And they're like, well, they're going to hell and they know it. And I just told them, good to go now. They just didn't. They just didn't make a decision for Jesus. But that's not what Jesus did. So I want to give you this advice. Start with the life that Jesus promises before you address the sin that keeps them from that life. And Jesus says, I've come to, to give them life and life to the full. There's an invitation. There's an invitation for any one of us who are, who are trying to live the gospel ethic and any, anyone outside of the Christian faith who's not experiencing life, like truly experiencing life. This has been a great challenge in our day because Christians are being accused of, of this term colonialism, meaning that, that the Christian faith is, is a white in Western American faith, and everywhere we've gone, there's been, you know, there's this, this threats against Christianity, like, and that's the reason why people have stopped listening to us. It's because they're like, no, that just sounds so white, it sounds so Western, and it sounds so American. And yet, Jesus was not white. Help me. He was not Western, nor was he American. And he wasn't even American either. So he was none of those things. So yet, if, if the Christian faith is so intertwined with those things, then we're actually guilty of what we're, being, what we're being accused of. So we need the purest form of the gospel. So start with Jesus, the, the life that Jesus promises before you address the sin that keeps them from that life. Every person, I believe, every human being, they start their life with a meaning void. They start their life with a meaning void. They don't know the true meaning of life. We're not born with this. This is, this is good news for anyone wanting to tell their friends about Jesus. Because we all start in the same place. We all long for a divine connection with our Heavenly Father. We're all aching after love, and we want to know that we're worthy of love. And Jesus, 
What he did on the cross shows that we were worthy of love because there's no greater love that the world has ever seen than when Jesus died on the cross for sinners. So if you're filling in the blanks in your info card, that's going to be the first one. Jesus converts us through human needs. Through human needs. If Jesus says that I've come that they may have life and life to the full, Jesus converts us through human needs. So what does this mean? The seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. Jesus says, if you're hungry, I'm the bread of life. If, I'm, if you're thirsty, Jesus is the living water. If you're in a season of darkness, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. If you feel excluded, Jesus says, I'm the door of the sheep. If you, if, if you long for direction in your life, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. If you want to know, if you have, just, you have questions about the meaning of, your, of life and, and what's going to happen with afterlife, after your life here on earth, Jesus says, if that's you, he says that I, I am the resurrection and the life. And if you want direction and you need understanding for your life, Jesus says, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. If you want to live a fruitful life, Jesus says, I am the true vine. All of these are human needs that we all experience. All of these that Jesus fulfills longings within every one of us. We all ask these questions from time to time. And Jesus says in his I am statements in the Gospel of John, he says, I am. So he converts us, he he moves us, and he changes us to be more like him through our human needs, what we know that, that what we know that we need. The amazing thing is, he put the longing in our hearts for him, and yet he's providing the way for us to receive that longing. Jesus is inviting people to experience true life conversion. True life conversion. You see, upon conversion, when someone commits their life to Jesus, not just making a decision that's emotional in the moment, it can be emotional and it does take a moment, but it's, it's committing in that moment where the, the biblical word to describe what happens, the shift that happens inside of a person is they become justified. They're declared not guilty of their sin because they've acknowledged that Jesus died for that sin, and that Jesus resurrected, proving that he was God. But the other word, the word that we get hung up on, another biblical word, is the word sanctification. We're justified in a moment, but we're sanctified in a lifetime. We're justified in a moment, declared not guilty of our sin, past, present, future. But we're sanctified over time. And this is where we get confused. I mentioned John 3 and what happened in Nicodemus last week. We're going to drill down into that a little further. I'll remind you of who Nicodemus is. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was not only a Pharisee, he was also part of the ruling council. The council is known as the Sanhedrin. So he not only is is a Pharisee, he is a Pharisee of the Pharisees. So he's in in this even higher place of authority... And the ruling council, 
And he comes to Jesus at night because he's confused, because he looks at what Jesus is doing and the miracles that Jesus is performing, and he realizes that these miracles have to be from God, but he can't, in his mind, connect the dots. With all the knowledge that he has of the Old Testament, he can't connect the dots that Jesus is God. So Jesus has this conversation with Nicodemus, and Jesus says to him, and I'll remind you what I said last week, Jesus says to him that he'll have to be born again. Nicodemus is like, how is that physically possible? I'm a grown man. Jesus says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. He says, you should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Jesus would continue just a couple sentences later, and he would say these two familiar verses to Nicodemus, ones you've heard. For God so loved the world that he, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus, as he's talking to Nicodemus, uh, we're not really sure why Nicodemus goes there at night. It could be because Nicodemus just wanted to be a secret admirer and he wanted to ask Jesus questions without other people like talking about the fact that he's asking these questions. It could be the fact that he just wanted Jesus' attention without everybody else being there and he just wanted some one-on-one time with Jesus. For whatever reason, we know that Jesus entertains his, his questions and he has this conversation. And Jesus shares the gospel with Nicodemus, the Pharisee, the Pharisee of Pharisees, part of the ruling council. See, for Nicodemus, he would have believed if I just do the right things, then it's all going to be dialed in. I'm going to be good. I just need to do everything right myself, under my own power. And Jesus, he, he says that the flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. In other words, there's something here, Nicodemus, that you can't do under your own power. And Jesus is always so saying this to Nicodemus. Following Jesus always costs you something. You can't just come to Jesus conveniently in the middle of the night when you're by yourself, Nicodemus, when nobody else is around and have these great religious conversations, spiritual conversations. You can't just come there under the cloak of darkness and not have anyone question your motive or what you're doing. You just can't do that, Nicodemus. Why is it that Jesus says the flesh gives birth to to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit? I'll say it in this way, because Jesus doesn't just want to do a little touch-up work. He wants to renovate your whole life. And we know the difference, don't we? Think about a house. If you're to, to buy a house and flip a house, you can go and you can take the house and you can throw some paint on it. You buy it cheap, throw some paint on it, and you want to sell high, right? Buy low, sell high, make some money, get out of it. 
And yet there's other times where maybe you, you've heard about or maybe you've seen these, these shows on HGTV or whatever. Somebody buys a house and they think, oh, I can, just, I can just fix it up a little bit. And I just put some paint on it, maybe change a couple little things. And then I'll flip it and make some money. And then they start tearing into it and realize that they've had, you know, like 20 years of termite damage. And then all of a sudden you just can't put paint on that, right? Can't put paint on a pig. It's still a, man, you guys are deep, right? Exactly. There's a difference between just a little touch-up work and, and what Jesus wants to do because he wants to renovate your whole life. He wants to change you from the inside out. We don't know for sure if Nicodemus gave his life to Christ, but there's two other instances in the Gospel of John that point to perhaps he did. In John 7 50 and 52, Nicodemus somewhat, he defends Jesus before the Pharisees at the festival of the booths. When other Pharisees, they were speaking against Jesus, speaking uh, about his arrest, Nicodemus argues that Jesus should receive a fair trial. And then fast forward even a few chapters deeper, we see in John 19, 39 through 52, Nicodemus brings 75 pounds of myrrh to help prepare Jesus' body for burial. As what some theologians have said, that 75 pounds of myrrh was the same amount that they used for a king. Perhaps Nicodemus, after hearing the gospel message, seeing the the fact that, that there was no way that, that he was going to actually be connected with God outside of receiving this gospel. And maybe we just see the stepping stones of faith lived out in Nicodemus's life. We're not sure, but we can just look at those things. Nicodemus found something out. Perhaps some of us need this reminder. There's no way of following Jesus without him interfering with your life. Those, there's no real convenient way to be a Christian, like where it's always on your terms. Like you just go to God when you want go to God, and when God wants something of you, you're like, no, we'll talk later. There's no way of growing in your faith and no way of following Jesus with, without him interfering with your life. This is what he wants for you and I. Moses couldn't follow God without facing Pharaoh. Noah couldn't follow God without building an ark. David couldn't follow God without facing a giant. Peter couldn't follow, couldn't follow God without getting out of the boat. It isn't that they just believed something. They were also had to have actions that matched their belief. Because the Christian life is not believing the right things. The Christian life is believing and doing the right things. The good news, the third main point is this. Jesus is transforming those who have converted. He's transforming those who have converted. As committed followers of Jesus... He's transforming our likes and our loves. 
to where the Christian life becomes easier. Shapes us and moves us, transforms us, even at the place of our desires. So our desires become more in line with his desires. Where his his wants become our wants and, and his mission becomes our mission. Where, where there's a lot less of us trying to be Christians, but us being transformed into being like Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 19 says this, The old has come. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciled the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Have you seen how many times the word committed was referenced? That Jesus is committed to us. We need to be committed to him. And Jesus also brings the converted into community, maybe even better yet, into family, into family. So he converts us through human needs. He's inviting us to experience true life conversion. He's transforming us, those who have converted and had that change, that justification moment. And he brings us into his family, into community. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. Since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. So the markers of of the Christian life is true spiritual change. A point of conversion. A full committance to the ways of God. Where we can see our own transformation happen over time and other people can as well. And also, there is a desire and there's a knowledge base where we just want to be around the family of God. These, in a general sense, are ways that we can look at our own life to say, okay, I'm growing, or you're growing. And when these things haven't happened or they're not happening, we have to ask the question, what happened? The Pharisees, they put heavy burdens on the people. And the burden was not something they were even helping them to carry or even willing to help them carry. Instead, they just wanted to heap more and more and more on them. This is the opposite of the gospel message. This is the opposite of Jesus. I will end with this passage. Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30. Notice Jesus' invitation. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A yoke is is a wooden fixture that they would put over two different oxen that they would pull together. And while the image of that may seem like uncomfortable or a lot of work, Jesus says the opposite. He says, no, when, when you join with me in with my yoke and we're, we're going together, we're teaming together, the burden is light. The work becomes easy because he's doing the heavy lifting. Church, I don't know where this lands with you and maybe you're kind of stunned Maybe you're stuck at the, okay, the, the, the conversion part. Maybe you're stuck at that because you look at these things and you're like, I, I, I need Jesus to be the bread of life. I need it today. I'm struggling today. Or I'm thirsting for righteousness. I want to know what's the right thing to do. Maybe because you're just in the Christian life and you're just in the middle of the Christian life and you feel like, I don't know which way to go and I don't know what to do and I feel like maybe I've lost some years and I don't want to lose any more. The invitation is open for you. Jesus doesn't want you to flounder anymore. He doesn't want you to wander in the wilderness anymore. He wants your eyes fully committed to him and locked on him and he wants you to work with him because your burden is light and the joy is full. Let's pray together. Lord, I'm glad that there's scriptures like this where you just call it for what it is. That you don't beat around the bush. You don't make us wonder what you meant. You nail it to the wall and let us see it. And Jesus, I need this. We need this. We need need moments like this that are sober moments that get our attention. So we don't just become fake, shiny, happy people who are different on the outside than we truly are on the inside. So Jesus, help us. Help us through the needs that we have, the true life conversion that we long for, the transformation that we crave, and the family that you invite us into. As we respond today, God, I I just, I'm trusting that you're gonna do what only you can do. I believe I've honored you and I've said what you wanted me to say. And I'm trusting that you're going to do what you're going to do. We praise you, Jesus. Amen.